0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: This week on Download This Show, Twitter is no longer Twitter, it is X or 10 or cross. We'll find out. Bad news Apple users in the UK, FaceTime and iMessage might be going away as the government seeks to implement new security laws. How will you send emojis now? Plus, AI continues to infiltrate, with the U.S. writer's strike now including actors who are concerned about their likeness being ripped off. And the 2000s hit website Neopets is set for a revival. But does anyone even want to raise a virtual pet anymore? This is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. My name is Angharad Yo, and welcome to Download the Show. Yes, indeed. This is another episode of Download This Show. My name is Angharad Yo, and I'm filling in for Mark Fennell while he's off being fabulous elsewhere. Our guests this week are co-founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy, Sarah Moran. Hi. And Alex Kidman, technology journalist and co-host of Vertical Hold. Hello. Hello, hello. Well, many companies, uh, as you may know, work hard on their brand recognizability for many years. It's kind of their main thing in some ways, but Elon Musk is built different and instead wants to abandon the Twitter brand for something else. Sarah, what's he done? Well, uh, it ain't Twitter anymore, Toto. Um, So he has rebranded Twitter uh, and we think it's called just X. Yes. Well, I raised this uh, right before we started recording. Is it X or is it cross? What are people's bets? I mean,
2: look, knots and crosses. He's either going to win or lose. Um, (laughs) If that's the game he's playing, then I'm here for it. But uh, look, maybe that's part of the mystery. You know, It's, it's, it's all a game to him and maybe that's
1: where we're at. Alex, what is the significance of him switching the name to X? Why has he done this?
0: Look, uh, only Elon Musk knows for sure, and there's a certain (coughs) argument to be said that uh, he's actually done this purely to feed his ego and get a bit of attention because we know he likes that kind of thing.
1: And we're giving it to him.
0: Yeah. Twitter's been, look, losing ad revenue at an amazingly consistent rate, but a frightening one nonetheless ever since he bought it. And perhaps he figures rebranding it might bring those advertisers back. But he's also uh, announced that that X or perhaps even 10, we haven't considered that, <gasps> oh! but uh, that whatever this new form of Twitter is going to be is not just going to be Twitter, Twitter, uh, uh, the, the new CEO actually said in a tweet off his tweet, are they still tweets if it's on X? I don't know. But she said, there's absolutely no limit to this transformation. X will be the platform that can deliver, well, everything.
1: This, to me, sounds like quite a lofty goal. Sarah, do you think it's achievable or do you think Elon is perhaps making promises he can't keep, is how I'm going to put it?
2: I mean, making promises he can't keep is well in his territory, but... um. <laughs> It's interesting, though, because usually when you do a rebrand that there's a motivation or new leadership, the new leader, Linda Yacarino, I would have loved to have thought that this was her initiative, but I'm starting to think that it might have been something that she's inherited. So I don't really know what the ambition here is. There is a theory going around that it really is all a big Uh, attempt to tank what was Twitter, um, in which case I think this may be where we're going. But I will say I've come up with another thought of what it might be. So if X is the platform, then maybe they're not tweets, but they're kisses.
1: (gasps) Oh, this is very cute. You know what? I was not on board with this rebrand at all. But now that we've come up with like seven different names for what it could actually be, I'm kind of into it. I think it's spicy. Remix.
0: (laughs) Because If we can't even decide what the X stands for, how are they meant to know?
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Another week, another weird thing from Elon to chat about. But moving on now, uh, some of the cornerstone features for iPhone users might actually be removed in the UK, which is a really big deal. Alex, what is going on here?
0: So the UK Home Office is looking to get legislation passed to upgrade what they call the Investigatory Powers Act 2016, basically to remove a great deal of the encryption that exists not just in FaceTime and iMessage, actually across a lot of internet services. Their aim, their goal, their position on this is so that they can uh, fight crime, so they can stop people doing bad things online. Apple are quite consistent about this and have been consistent with governments worldwide on this. They're not happy about the weakening of encryption and they've basically threatened to potentially remove FaceTime and iMessage from UK users if this goes through.
1: So for people that don't know what iMessage and FaceTime are, Sarah, could you explain and explain like why these services are important? Aren't there other things that will fill the gap instead? Yeah, so the way that these messages
2: work is because of the end-to-end encryption. So when I send from my phone to your phone, the device itself encrypts, so it's going to code what is being sent and so that no one else at any point will be able to understand what's being said. So only the messages sent to you are going to be interpreted by you at your end when you receive it. And so that's really important for a lot of these communications. And it's really what Apple has positioned itself on, that it is the secure option, that it is really hard on security and encryption. And there are other apps on on the App Store that allow you to do that. But Essentially, what this law or the, the proposed laws are saying is that, no, that'll be for every single app on the phone. So there will be no getting around this law, which is kind of why there's a very understandable position that Apple is saying that it's like you're talking about corrupting the whole way that we've built this ecosystem to keep people safe. So it's an interesting, interesting time in the UK at the moment.
1: Is it just about uh, encryption and security and safety or is it truly about Apple's bottom line that they don't want to have to redevelop
0: all of these apps they already have?
2: Yeah, I think they've done the maths. (laughs) 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 What do you think, Alex?
0: Uh, Look, I think... It is a bit of both. They certainly don't want to have to spend the money. That being said, they really genuinely have been consistent on this kind of stuff, even in the home market of the US, of not wanting to break encryption, of not wanting to change how they do stuff, on the basis of good user privacy principles, to an extent that probably has cost them more money. They could have folded and not fought the US government years ago, and and it would have saved them probably more than they would have to spend in developers. It is really worth pointing out, this isn't just an Apple fight because this is about the utility of encryption software across the entire internet. Because as soon as you start introducing these backdoors, as soon as you start introducing these ways, even based on good or theoretically good principles of wanting to stop bad people doing bad things, you weaken all of those tools for everyone and you open up holes, in fact, for those bad people to potentially get into services they should never be able to get into in the first place.
1: Is this then putting... I guess, crime and enforcing laws and security and privacy in the hands of companies rather than governments, though? What do you think, Alex?
0: I don't think it is. Apple, in this case, is delivering the tool. It's encryption. Apple did not invent encryption. It just uses it across these tools. I think the issue here is the right of people to have privacy, and I do think that that is important. It's that kind of classic argument around, you know, I could use a kitchen knife to commit a murder, therefore we should ban all the kitchen knives. Well, no, because there's so many good uses for kitchen knives replace encryption in that sentence, it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I think you get what I mean. (laughs) It works to provide us with all sorts of actually quite vital and private online tools. And I think there shouldn't, I would hope, be too many people out there who think, well, no, nobody deserves a right to be private online because that's what this boils down to.
1: Sarah, it's no big secret that big tech could probably do with a little more regulation in some areas. Do you think that this is an area that should be left alone or is there something to the proposed laws that is a step in the right direction?
2: I think some of these government policies are an attempt to be seen to be tougher than the tech companies. But in this case, I think the tech companies are right to protect the privacy of their users. That's what they have uh, constantly advocated for. And look, I'm, you know, I-, I will sway between a lover and a hater of big tech, so I, I will go either <laughs> way. But, um, but in this case, they are not incorrect because the protection that encryption offers if you were just say, oh yeah, cool, but we'll just let we'll just let the government take a looky look in, to the point that Alex made earlier, that it opens up so much opportunity for exploitation of everyone else. You're either all safe, or you're safe with a little hole in it that anyone can get through. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, you know, um, it is about the the broader security that we all need to be able to confidently use our phones versus the government wanting to be seen to be tough on crime and to and to access the.
1: The things that people do with their phones. And Sarah, do you think we're likely to see this same issue arise in Australia?
2: We have seen similar issues arise over the past and they it pops up and bubbles and, you know, it takes various different forms. Sometimes it's talking about uh, encryption on our phones. But, you know, I, I, in the years that I have been living on the internet, <laughs> I've seen arguments, you know, bubble like this for many, many years. You know, in at least the last 20 years, we've probably had about four major movements in Australia that have looked at you know, the government wanting to take a look at what it is that we're doing. And I I see why the government want to try to do that to, you know, the, the issues that they bring forth to say, well, there are things that we want to stop people doing... But the way in which they go about it by using our technology really hurts everybody, not just those who are criminals. So, oh, look, I'm sure it'll be something that'll
1: happen until the end of time. I'm going to be in the retirement home having this conversation, I can imagine. Absolutely. Download this show is what you're listening to. My name is Angharad Yo, and we're joined by co-host of Vertical Hold and technology journalist Alex Kidman and co-founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy, Sarah Moran. And we are here once again saying, oh, isn't this like that episode of Black Mirror with a talk of existential threat being presented by everyone's favorite new technology, AI. What is happening, Alex?
0: So in this case, it has to do with Hollywood, that well-known den of uh, entirely honest people who care only (laughs) about the art and never about the money. Uh, the, The Writers Guild and the Actors Guild are out on strike and one of the big contentious issues here is the use of AI. For writers, it's about using AI to modify scripts or using AI to train scripts. For actors, and especially bit part actors, it's a little bit more existential in a way because it's actually about the rights and likenesses of their images and whether or not you could create a digital Harrison Ford or, for that matter, a digital extra in scene 23 for as long <laughs> as you like without paying either of them.
1: So have either of you seen the Black Mirror episode, Joan is Awful? Heck yes, have I. <laughs> yes. It was predicting the future.
2: We just didn't know it yet.
1: Yep, so if you haven't seen the episode, uh, it basically is what we're talking about in terms of actor likenesses being, I guess, collected and used without consent of the person uh, who is being, I'm going to say mimicked?
0: Yeah, Duplicated. Yeah. I mean, Do, yeah. it oh, is yeah. the person. Yes. You're trying to present the person.
1: Yes. So, uh, so in this episode, uh, spoiler alert, there is a woman whose likeness gets used in a show that is basically just her life. It's just... Her life reproduced with a different actor and it's, you know, precisely this idea that we're talking about that uh, it is possible or becoming possible for companies to take someone's likeness and just use it however they want. But is this a founded anxiety or is the change really imminent, Alex?
0: Look, it seems to be what the what the big studios are looking for, at least not so much with your kind of A-list star level, but at least with extras, what, what they've said they're kind of looking for is the right to say, right, well, you know, we captured you as an extra in this scene and now we've got your face, but we want to use it as an extra in this other scene in a completely different movie ten years down the track. Cool, we can do that and we can completely recreate you as we need. And, of course, for those bigger A-list stars, it becomes much more an issue of of, well, hang on, they've got a lot of footage of me. I mean, there's countless Tom Cruise movies out there. If you started creating digital Tom Cruise movies, would the paying public notice, but critically for the Hollywood studios, would they have to pay Tom Cruise quite as much?
1: Sarah, is AI technology even good enough for this to be viable? Are we going to watch these movies and be like, yeah, that seemed human and enjoyable, or is it just going to be an uncanny valley kind of situation?
2: Look, I love being a guinea pig, and I'll be honest, <laughs> I, last week I actually had a crack at doing this of myself. Oh, so, you're kidding. Yeah. Um, look, I did it with my voice. Because I thought, oh, if I could replicate my voice, you know, why would I have to come and download this show? I could just <laughs> send myself a copy. Um, but what I did was I used, so there's a tool uh, from Eleven Labs, and they say that they can copy your voice and, you know, you can create this digital likeness. Now, I did it, and <laughs> hilariously, it could only create an American version of myself uh, or a British one. Mm-hmm. So Australia has not been uh, AI'd yet. Um, but I'll tell you what, the it was very strange listening to myself with an American accent, but there was the tonal, you know, the cadences were all there. So I, I feel like you know it's it's the early dawn of what will become this technology and and what we can both do with it and and what we shouldn't do with it. But yeah, it's it's on its way. It's still pretty clunky. But the acceleration, I mean, even, even in the six months I've known about this tool, yeah, we're on our way. Uh, these are very valid concerns that these people have.
1: But what I'm hearing is that Australians are safe and we should move all production to places that have less common accents.
2: Perhaps. Although, you know, I know how popular Australian actors are, so maybe they'll they'll put that on the top of the priority <laughs> list.
1: So who knows? Alex, what is going to happen to the shows and movies that are currently being made in, in light of these strikes and, I guess, this push forward to AI?
0: Look, by and large, they're not getting made or they're not getting... Pushed forward quite as rapidly as they might be. Uh, we've already the writers' strike has actually already been on for a while. So things like the US late night talk shows haven't been happening because they need writers on a rolling basis. But even kind of studio sitcoms often need writers on set to make changes on the day, and they're not allowed to because they're on strike. So we will see. Uh, we will see a bit of a gap, I think, in terms of. Uh, Hollywood and and US TV studio output probably fairly similar to what we saw actually in uh, the early days of the pandemic when nobody could get into a studio. It's just that in this case nobody's going into a studio for a different reason. And it will be as these strikes often are a question of our offer and counter offer. And predicting exactly when that will actually conclude that's really really tough. Maybe if I had an AI to help me. But-
1: <laughs> Sarah, do you think people are going to enjoy watching the same actors for the rest of our lives? I'm thinking Harrison Ford is going to keep making digital films until I'm long dead and we're not going to have any new actors. Is that the future that we're looking at? And is that something that we want? Uh, it's all possible at the moment. I think what is weirder to me
2: is, is thinking about what this means for our content. I don't know, but I can only imagine the amount of data that these streaming services already have on my viewing habits. And, you know, I know when Netflix or, you know, any of the big streamers have dropped something with me as the target audience. Like, I know. (laughs) I'm like, oh, it's a Sarah Saturday. This one's one of my ones. And that is the way that we're starting to see this content be produced. It's, you know, the stuff that makes us feel good and feel safe. They know from the algorithms what sort of content that is. And so we're, we're seeing Hollywood, like, really creating content as a product. And I think that that's what is more scary to me is that once we get stuck in content as a product, how do you go back to a time when creativity gets a chance and we invest in things that may or may not work and are exciting and are different? Because that's what helps us grow as a, as a society. And not getting that would mean that we are absolutely getting ripped off alongside all of the people who don't get to produce that content anymore.
1: Maybe I'm being a little bit existential myself now, but that to me is assuming that AI itself will not become very creative in a way that is satisfying to people.
2: Well, that's it. And I think, you know, it's. I was thinking about how we rewatch shows that we really like because it makes us feel good and there is a familiarity to them. And, you know, maybe some of the bigger ambitious stuff doesn't make us feel good and safe. And maybe that is why we revert to the things that, that make us feel good. So I don't know. I mean the algorithm will one day tell us, you know, what are the things we want and and what will we reject? So uh, is it one of those things where algorithm knows best? I don't know. It's yet to be seen.
1: Well, this isn't, uh, as we've said, just about actors and Hollywood and shows and movies. There's also a lot of high profile authors of books, you may have heard of them, uh, demanding payment for AI using their material in order to train AI. Alex, what are they claiming?
0: So they're claiming that Essentially speaking, their copyright is being infringed by being used as the training for these tools. And it's sort of not hard to see why because in order to make a good AI, in order to make an AI that actually mimics the thing that you want that AI to do, you need as many samples as possible. So Sarah was talking about uh, the voice thing she was using not having Australian accents. Well, it hasn't been trained on enough Australian accents. They clearly need to get more Aussies on to start making that happen. In this case, what they're talking about is AI companies profiting from the works of all of these copyrighted authors and their styles and idioms. And again, it's an existential threat because it creates an issue where obviously you could just say, hey, why don't I get an AI to write the next Neil Gaiman book instead of getting Neil Gaiman to write it, for example. It's that extra actor thing but probably magnified a great deal because that writing can then, of course, be used as scripts, as animations, as game plots, as anything else again.
1: Sarah, there is so much information being fed into these chatbots. Can they even truly prove that, for example, ChatGPT has read their book?
2: Oh, this is, this is the interesting part for me. is because it's like a big black box. We don't know what the AI has been trained on, and that is currently very much kept a secret. Like, when you get something from ChatGPT or, or another generative AI piece... We see it a lot when uh, we know it's not producing facts, right? Like it'll just make up sentences. You're like, huh, because it won't quote its source. So it won't tell you or show you how it came to this conclusion. And that's where I have a lot of ethical questions. Um, The ethical questions for me come more about bias or, you know, are we over-training on on certain literature or on certain materials and then under-training on others? So when I found out that this uh, AI that I used didn't have an Australian voice, I wonder if you're going to use AI to generate new creative works, how much of that work is Australian? Will the Australian voice and a- Australian words be removed and our idioms be removed from the way we create content because the AI never trained on it? Like there's all of these other consequences that happen when we don't know what the source material is and we, and we don't have an input on, onto what that looks like. Mm. Alex,
1: do you think that these authors are likely to win their case, speaking not as a lawyer?
0: Oh, good. I'm so <laughs> glad you asked me not to speak as a lawyer because it turns out I'm not actually a lawyer. Mm. Um Again, I think it's a tough one to say. It really depends on whether or not they can convince the courts to get these AI companies to open up on the models that they've used on where they've sourced their stuff, if these companies indeed even know, because there's a certain quantity of evidence that suggests that they're just doing kind of large-scale automated scraping anyway. They may have inadvertently infringed on that. I think the more important part of this really is that idea of opening up and making AI more generally accountable and accessible, which should actually be good for AI generally. We should get more accurate things out of it, but also then protect people who do want to work in any given creative industry from that kind of unpaid exploitation.
1: You're listening to Download This Show, your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. My name is Angharad Yo, keeping the seat warm for Mark Fennell, and I'm joined by Sarah Moran, co founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy, and technology journalist and co host of Vertical Hold, Alex Kidman. Now, do you remember the early 2000s when everything was Neopets and nothing hurt? It was a time where the internet was bursting full of cutesy websites, and now Neopets is making a comeback. Okay, well, I will let you know that I could take the reins on this one because not only was I the correct age for Neopets, I was so into it that as like an eight-year-old, I actually scammed other people out of their Neopets accounts.
2: Oh, you were that person? I was that
1: person, (laughs) yeah. Oh
2: no, you were that Neopian, which is (laughs) actually the plural of Neopets Ah. fans.
1: Um, well, I stopped being a Neopian when I got caught and they banned my account. Uh, but basically, as you said, you, you get a little virtual pet and then there's community boards and games that you can play, money that you can earn, items that you can buy. It's a, it's a whole little digital community thing um, that, as I said, very popular in the early 2000s, but its user base has declined heavily. And now they're looking to invest $4 million to revive the website, having just gone on today Sarah did you know you said there was a bit of rendering issues but did you manage to get a sense of how alive the community is at the moment Oh,
2: Neopets. So, <laughs> no, I, I never got into Neopets at the time. And so for me, I'm like, now's my chance. I, I missed that moment, but here I am. So I set up a Neopet this morning um, oh. and I can tell you that I got to select a pet and then I got to choose its colours. Um, and then I was trying to get into the community of it this morning, but it doesn't render too well on mobile. That is my status <laughs> update for Neopets for you.
1: <laughs> Alex, were you ever a Neopetian? I'm going
0: to say? Look, I'm just feeling ancient here because I wasn't into Neopets and my own children were not the right age to be into Neopets. <laughs> so I'm just going to crumble into dust in the corner here. But I was totally aware of it because, as you say, it was, it was everywhere. It was huge in the early 2000s. As to whether or not the comeback's going to work, mm, I, I'm not entirely convinced. I, I feel like we've been here before with so many other things that people have tried to bring back. $4 million sounds like a lot to you and me, but in terms of app development, in terms of game development, it's almost nothing. It's it's such a small amount. They've probably actually made it back in a sense because we're talking about it because it's made a few headlines. <laughs> so there's that. But also Neopets, I think, was very much one of those moment-in-time services because it ran on Flash. Remember Flash, everyone, going mm. back years and years? and And so much of it fell apart because Flash fell apart, essentially speaking. And it predated smartphones. And Sarah was saying, you know, it doesn't work very well on a smartphone. It would have appealed to you as an eight-year-old because I'm guessing you were probably accessing it on probably a desktop, maybe a laptop, certainly not a smartphone at that period because basically smartphones didn't exist. And now for that core community of people, leaving those who are nostalgia affected aside, for that core community of very young players They've got a billion other things that they can do on a smartphone that just didn't exist when it was new to compete with their attention. I I think it's going to have a, an incredibly hard time cutting through.
1: Well, this is interesting because, uh, you know, the question obviously is raised, who is this for? Who are they reviving Neopets for? Is it getting new children in to enjoy this child-based service that has always felt like it's for um, young people or are they trying to tap into Um, older people who have nostalgia for this. It is a community-based kind of website, so you would think that you need to have like-minded people. Right, Sarah?
2: Yeah. uh, Look... uh I know who it's for. Uh, I for saw you? people.
1: T- well, no,
2: maybe now. Yes, I, <laughs> I am a newbie, but I will be there. Um, I saw people on Twitter saying they were going back to their Neopets. So look, maybe this has come full circle, and maybe that's why Elon rebranded. Uh, he's realised his biggest competitor is actually Neopets, <laughs> um, and that's you know threads. Sorry, it's not cutting it. We need Neopets to come back and be the community where we all go and hang out.
1: Well, I have also heard that they have uh, kind of separated out of their parent company. It is a Neopets dedicated team and company now working on this revitalization. So maybe there's something to it this time, Alex. Maybe uh, having their own team who aren't beholden to another company's kind of vision for it means that they're going to have the flexibility and freedom to make Neopets what it was always meant to be, a space for eight-year-olds to scam each other.
0: Look, maybe, never say never. <laughs> At the same time, I'm just reminded that they always, that about every two or three years, they try and revive the Tamagotchi, and, and that never seems to take off in the way it did in the 90s before anyone had ever even heard of a Neopet.
1: Well, look, as someone who would absolutely play a fresh Tamagotchi, I think I might need to disagree with you there, Alex. But that is all the time we have. Thank you so much to my guests, Sarah Moran, co-founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy. Handle Killer Girl on Neopets. You're looking for friends now, building that community. That's it, let's go. And technology journalist and co-host of Vertical Hold, Alex Kidman.
0: It's been a pleasure and I'm still holding out hope for Mastodon.
1: You keep holding that hope, my friend. Someone needs to. My name is Angharad Yo and thank you for listening to Download This Show.